we get back into a series called Believe, a journey through the Gospel of John. And uh, my friend Andy Cherry, who, who led worship, he was more our worship pastor, uh, he told me, he said, you know, we're entering our third calendar year studying the Gospel of John. I mean, we take breaks for this might get awkward, some other things, but we've been really studying this book for the better part of two years and now entering our third calendar year. He said, so technically this is no longer a journey through the Gospel of John. This is like an odyssey through the Gospel of John. This is our nine-year study, of course, through the Gospel of John. And so if you're new with us, you came on, on a great Sunday, or if you're new in the last six months, just by show of hands, I'm just curious to know, how many of you have not been a part of this study with us? You're new since, like, let's say, September. You've been here since September less than anybody? Anybody? Cool, cool. All right, so you picked a great Sunday to come because I want to catch us up to speed on what's happened in John's Gospel so far. And then we're going to finish chapter 13 so we can get into chapter 14 next week. Um, uh, John's gospel has 21 chapters, so we're less than two-thirds of the way there. So, again, we have several more years to go. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We've squeezed every last juice out of this berry, I promise you. Uh, and, and if you're new, before we jump into that, I, I do want to invite you to kind of take your next step of connection here at Bayview Glen Church. Being here at a worship service on a Sunday morning is awesome. We're so thrilled that you're here. But taking that next step and doing one of two things, uh, getting into a life group, small group of people situated geographically across the greater Toronto area. We have a lot of them. And they meet to receive life from God, share life with one another, and bring life to the community around them. I'm in a life group. It's great. It's awesome. And I would encourage you to take that step and, and get into one. Second thing is get on a serve team and uh, take on the posture and heart of Jesus who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that's a great way to connect at Bayview in a life group or a serve team. If you want to know more about that, we have these little... Uh, little uh, brochures or whatever they are, uh, whatever you call these things about life groups and serve teams, just tell you a lot of information about them. You can grab them at the Connect Center just outside on your way out this morning, uh, so just outside those doors and to the right, or you could, I have a couple up here, you could come grab them from me after service, or if you would like to take the next step uh, of faith in terms of meeting Jesus for the first time or being baptized or, like I said, getting more information about a life group or serve team, take that Connect card in front of you, complete it, uh, give it to the folks at the at the Connect Center uh, outside, or drop it in the offering plate when it comes by you as we conclude the service. So that's what we're going to do this morning, is we're going to spend about two-thirds of our time reviewing what we've already learned in the Gospel of John, and then we're going to conclude and wrap up chapter 13 so we can get into 14 next week. Before we do that, would you pray with me? Uh, God, thanks for the opportunity to gather together this uh, wonderful, brisk uh, December morning uh, to worship you, to make much of you, and to hear from your word. Uh, we're excited to be here, and we ask, oh God, that you would do what only you can do, uh, and that is change the heart of people uh, as we look into your word together. In the name of Christ, the people of God, with enthusiasm said, amen. So here's the deal. There are Four biographies of the life of Jesus included in the Bible in the New Testament. And they're called uh, Gospels. This word gospel just means good news. And they're written by four different individuals from four different perspectives. The gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John. So they tell the same story, they just tell it from a different perspective. So Matthew, very, very Jewish, has a Jewish audience, is a very Jewish gospel. Uh, Luke is a physician 
and a researcher, so you see that in his gospel. Mark is like straight to the point kind of guy, so you see that in his gospel. And then we're studying the good news or the gospel according to John. And and it's not just a biography of the life of Jesus, but it's a purposeful biography. John has a point here. He's driving at something. He's not just giving us some facts to believe about Jesus, but he wants us to do something with those facts, and he tells us exactly what that is, so we're crystal clear on his purpose of recording this gospel of the the biography of the life of Jesus. He says, uh, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. I always love that verse, don't you? Think about that. Jesus did lots of other stuff that's not even written here. And one day we'll get to find out what those are. I hope they have like video in heaven, right? Because he's like, hey, remember that time that you did this? Could you just roll the tape? I'm sure there's high def. Okay. He says, uh, which are not written in this book, lots of other stuff. But he says, I wrote these things so that you may, say that word with me, believe. We can't wrap up 2018 with that level of enthusiasm, okay? We just can't. I write these things so that you may, come on now, believe. Uh, pistuo is the original Greek word, and it means place your active trust in Christ, your faith in him, to rest your life on him. That's my goal, John says, that, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by doing so, believing, you may have life in his name. We've called this series Believe because John uses that word nearly a hundred times in his gospel. That's his point. That's his goal. He wants to invite us to life through Jesus by placing our active trust in him. That's what he's doing. That's why he records this biography of the life of Jesus, to invite us to life through active trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And John's an interesting dude because he began, dude, why do I say say dude? What am I, 15? Uh, John's an interesting cat. (laughs) Now I'm a jazz person. Uh, John's an interesting individual because he began to follow Jesus in his teenage years, probably about 14 or 15 years old. And he was the the last living disciple. He's the one that kind of outlived all the rest of them into his 80s or possibly even 90s. And that's when he wrote his gospel. That's when he wrote this biography of the life of Jesus in order to invite all those who would read it, including you and me, into life by placing our active trust in Jesus. And not only uh, did he live into his 80s or 90s, but John became one of Jesus' best, best, best friends. Twelve disciples and three that Jesus was super, super tight with, and John was one of them. In fact, throughout his gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He refers to himself in the third person. I always wonder what Peter would have thought about that, you know? (laughs) The disciple whom Jesus loved. This is why John wrote his gospel after all the other disciples died. Because they can't dispute it, right, at this point. But but he invites us to experience life through Jesus. And and here's what I did this week. I went and reread chapters 1 through 13 that we've already covered. And what I wanted to do is go back and kind of march through what John has done in terms of building his argument or building his invitation to
to life through placing our active trust in Jesus. And, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take chapters 1 through 13 and grab one word that summarizes each of those chapters. Because, you know, as we've kind of picked it apart and taken it piecemeal, you know, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we get into the minutia and the detail. We've got pretty granular in a lot of ways in this series. But when you read it all together, what you see is themes and patterns begin to develop throughout the gospel. So if you're a note taker, today is a great day to take notes because you're going to get one word. And because I'm a preacher, it's alliterative. They all start with W. All right. One word to, to summarize each of the first 13 chapters, and then we'll complete chapter 13. So chapter one of John's gospel is about the word. It's about the word. John begins his biography of the life of Jesus this way. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. See, Matthew begins his gospel with a birth narrative, as does Luke. Mark is like a straight-to-the-point kind of guy, gets down to business right away, and just starts with John the Baptist, like starts in Jesus' adult life. In fact, Mark's favorite word is immediately. He uses that word all throughout his gospel. See, but John rolls the tape back to the very beginning. And he says, in the beginning was the logos, the word of God, the message of God. And remember, in first century Jewish culture, someone's word was kind of part and parcel who they are, their identity. So it's not just the message of God, it's the very character, the heart of God, the person of God. The word of God was with God and the word was God. He, the word, was in the beginning with God. And John eventually tells us that the word is Jesus and the word became came flesh and dwelt among us. What John wants us to know right from the jump is that God became flesh and bone in the person of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 is about the word. Chapter 2 is about wine. <laughs> Chapter 2 is about wine. Jesus is at a wedding in a city called Cana, a little village called Cana. And, and back then, weddings were like a week-long celebration, which I think is a great idea, by the way. Week-long celebration, and towards the end of it, they run out of wine. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? And that sounds like derogatory condescending or whatever. It's a term of endearment. He's talking really respectfully to his mother. And like any good mom would do, his mother doesn't actually respond to him. She just kind of assumes that he's going to do what she's asked him to do. I don't know about you guys, but here's what my mom does sometimes. She says, will you take out the trash? I say, well, I don't want to take out the trash. My time has not yet come, you know. <laughs> and it's almost as if she looks at her son and goes, <sighs> and just kind of rolls her eyes and sighs. She doesn't even respond to him. Look what she does. She says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Like she doesn't even talk back to Jesus and go, look, I don't care if your time has not yet come. You've got to fix this. I'm your mother. She just says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Jesus goes, all right, so here's the deal. There's six ceremonial washing jugs over there, about 30 gallons apiece. I want you to pick those up, bring them over to the master of ceremonies. And when they did that, the water became wine. And listen, chapter 2 isn't just about wine. Here's what it's about. It's about Jesus exploding religiosity. 
Here's why. Because he takes these six ceremonial washing jugs that represented people just kind of saying, I've ticked all the boxes, done all the things, I've, I've, done, I've got my righteousness in check, I go to church, I read the Bible, I do everything I'm supposed to do. That's what those ceremonial washing jugs represented. And Jesus changed that water into wine. In other words, what he's saying is, it's not about your own righteousness or your own religion or your own anything. It's about God breathing new life into you. That's why he does what he does in chapter 2. Chapter 1 is about the word. Chapter 2 is about wine. Chapter 3 is about whoever. Whoever. Jesus has a conversation with one of the religious leaders, a man named Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus under the cover of night. He's a little embarrassed to talk to Jesus, but he comes to Jesus and he says this, and I love it. He says, hey, look, we know you're from God because the stuff you're doing and the stuff you're saying, it's clear you're from God. And Jesus has the opportunity now to share with Nicodemus all kinds of different things. He talks about new birth. He talks about the spirit. And he talks about whoever would come to the foot of the cross. And John 3, 16, uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That Say that word with me. Whoever, that's our key word, John 3. Whoever believes, again, that's the title of our series, in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you're looking for a verse to memorize, you've never memorized a verse of the Bible before. This is a great starting point. John 3, 16, that God loved the world, that whoever would come. Not just this group, not just that group. Not just the people who have it all together, but anyone that would believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. I love it. It's about whoever. Chapter 4 is about a well. Jesus is journeying from Galilee in the north down to Judea in the south, and he passes through a country of Samaria. And Jews wouldn't have passed through Samaria or talked to Samaritans. Men would not have talked to women. But Jesus does all of those things when he came to a well that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there in Sychar in Samaria. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. It's the middle of the day. No one would be drawing water water at this time. They drew water in the morning to last them all day. But a woman shows up. This woman is not uh, is living with a man who's not her husband and she's been married five times before. And Jesus launches into this conversation with her using this opportunity, leveraging or parlaying this moment here at a well to talk about living water. And he says, everyone who drinks, next slide please, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of welling, uh, a spring of uh, water welling up to eternal life. So see here at the well, Jesus is saying, if you come to me, the living water, that living water will well up within you a spring that leads to eternal life. Chapter four is about a well. Chapter five is about wellness. Wellness. It's about experiencing healing from Jesus and the conditions that Jesus establishes for healing. Understand that when we come to Jesus, we don't come on our terms, we come on his. You understand that? That he sets out the, hey, look, this is not about anything other than unconditional surrender. This is about waving the white flag and saying, I've got nothing left to give. I come to you with open hands to receive what you would have for me, for wellness in our spirit, in our body, in our flesh, 
everything for Jesus to breathe restorative and renewing life into our hearts. And the reason why we know the conditions here is because Jesus, in chapter 5, comes across a man who has been crippled since birth. And he's sitting by this pool in Jerusalem, and the superstition was when the water got stirred up, whoever got to the pool first would be healed from whatever infirmity or affliction that they were experiencing. So Jesus saw this man lying by the pool, uh, kind of with this superstition in mind, that when the water gets stirred up, up. If I get in first, I'll be healed. And he said he'd been there a long time. We know that because he's been crippled since birth. And Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? Don't you think that's an interesting question? Because if I'm this guy and I've been unable to walk since birth, my response, if I don't know that Jesus is the Son of God, right? My disrespectful response is, well, that's a stupid question. Of course I do. Of course I want to be healed. But that's not how this man responds. He responds with excuses. He says, well, you know, when the water gets stirred up, I've got no one to take me in. He, he plays kind of this victim mentality. He comes with conditions to Jesus. And we know that Jesus is not impressed with this man's response because later in the chapter, he'll actually scold him. And he says, man, you need to get some stuff together here and respond in a more grateful way. Chapter 5 is about wellness and the conditions that Jesus establishes when we come to him in order to experience the healing that he extends and the offer of healing that, that he extends to us. Chapter 6 is about walking. And not just walking somewhere or anywhere, but walking on water. In the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus feeds about twelve to 13,000 people. The Bible says 5,000, but back then they only counted men. So if you were to count women and children, it's likely about twelve or 13,000 people with just a couple of loaves and fish. And after the feeding of the 5,000, which you hear that miracle referred to that way, Jesus withdraws and goes over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he tells his disciples to meet him. And while they're rowing across the Sea of Galilee, a storm dips down on that lake, still happens today, and it gets really nasty really quickly. And the Bible says when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus, say that word with me, this is our W word, walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened but he said to them it is I in the original Greek ego a me I am who I am he's claiming divinity here and don't be afraid in other words I've got control of the storm I've got control of nature so much so that I can just walk across this water so don't be afraid I'm in control chapter six about walking now through the first six chapters of the book of John, things are going really well for Jesus. There's a lot of people following him around, probably because he, you know, turned water into wine in chapter 2 and fed them with a bunch of carbs in chapter 6, right? So everything's going really well. Lots of people following him. I've joked about this before, but at this point in his kind of ministry life, he's like Jesus Bieber, right? Like everybody wants to be around him. He's got an entourage. But in chapter 7, things go wonky. Things go bad. Things go sideways. Things get nasty really quickly because the religious establishment begins to dislike Jesus so much they begin to try to kill him. 
John wants us to know that the conflict with the religious establishment, the Jewish authority at this point, is starting to escalate. It's getting worse. It's starting to bubble and simmer. And we're going to see that conflict come to a head in chapter 20 when they crucify Jesus. Chapter 8 is about a witness, a witness. And I love what happens here in chapter 8. Here's what happens. The religious leaders who Jesus gives them a pretty hard time, if you don't know anything about Jesus, he's, he, he, gives a, he gives the religious authorities a really hard time because he says, you hang these heavy weights of expectation around the necks of people, and it's too much for them to bear and too much for them to carry. You're saying to people, you've got to tick all these boxes in order to impress God, be near to God. And Jesus comes along and says, my load is easy. My burden is light. And he says, stop hanging that weight of expectation around the necks of people. And the religious authorities say to him, look, you can't be who you say you are because you don't have enough people vouching for you. In other words, they say to him, in our law, it's written, or Jesus says, in our law, or they say to him, in our law, it's written that you've got to have at least Two witnesses. And Jesus says, yes, in your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. This is not the biblical law. This is the additional law that the religious leaders added. And Jesus says, in your law the testimony of two people is true. But I am one who bears witness about myself. And the Father, that's number two, who sent me bears witness about me. I love this. Now watch this. This is so, this is so beautiful that Jesus does this. It, this is not the Old Testament law that he's talking about here. This is the additional religious law. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'll even live up to kind of your expectations of me. I'll talk to you about what you expect and even live up to those things. What he's doing is he's kind of meeting the religious leaders where they're at. Do you understand it? He's not just saying to them, well, you're, you know... I'm trying to think of an appropriate way to say this. Jesus would never say to someone, shut up, right? But if, but, but if I were the son of God or if you were the son of God and you had that type of authority and a religious leader came to you and said, you need to live up to my expectations, wouldn't you tell them to shut up? I would too. Right? But Jesus doesn't. It's so beautiful. He goes, look, I get that in your law. It's written that the testimony of two people is true. So let's just play by those rules. I am one witness and the Father is witness number two. See how much he loves even the religious leaders? You see how much he loves them to meet them where they're at? I think that's awesome. Chapter 9 is about work. And not like work is your vocation, your job. It's about the works of God. And in chapter 9, the disciples ask this really interesting question. And sometimes I think we think it's a stupid question, but I think it's a good question. They come across with Jesus, a man who was blind from birth. And they ask Jesus, okay, who messed up? Who failed? Who sinned so that this man was born blind? It's one of two people. It's either him or his parents. Who did it? And I love what Jesus says. He answers them. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, you're looking for a cause and effect. Like they sinned, therefore he's born blind. You sinned, therefore you're born blind. And we look for that in our own lives all the time, don't we? When things go wonky, when things go haywire, we always look for a reason. Where did I mess up? 
Or where did someone else mess up? Who can I blame? We have lots of pastors who are away on vacation this week, and my mantra is blame people who can't defend themselves. I love that. I love that. So if something goes wrong today, we're just going to blame Kevin, okay? It's beside the point. Jesus says, look, it's not about who messed up to cause this. Sometimes things just happen in our lives as a result of the broken world we live in so that the works of God might be displayed. And the work of God that's about to be displayed is Jesus giving this man his sight back. And not only that, look at the commandment to his disciples. He says, now we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. This is a metaphor, this day-night thing. He's saying at some point the kingdom's going to come back and there'll be no more work left to do. So disciples, in the meantime, do the work of the Father. Do the work of the kingdom. And by extension, he's saying that to you and me. He's saying, at some point, there's not going to be any more opportunity to do the work of the Father. So take advantage of it now while it's still day. Do this work. Chapter 10 is about why. Why? There's a guy named uh, Simon Sinek that that, uh, asks this question all the time. What's your why? What's your purpose in life? Jesus has a why. He has a mission. He has a purpose. He's not just doing miracles, you know, kind of because it's fun. He's got a purpose, and here's his purpose. Ready? He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came. Here's my why. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Listen so closely here, and I think this is really, if you let this sink into your heart, it'll change you. It'll change you. 2,000 years ago, God became flesh and bone. And did miracles and walked on the planet and had friends and had pain in his life and went to the cross so that you might have life and have it abundantly. If you were the only one, Jesus would have still come for you. To do the work of the Father, to bring the kingdom, to go to the cross in your place. That was his why. You're his why. That's that's awesome. That'll change your 2019 pretty quickly. To know that he came so that you might have life and have it abundantly. Chapter 10 is Jesus' why. Chapter 11 is about him weeping. Uh, Chapter 11 is about him weeping. Weeping. What happens is he hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. Lazarus has two sisters. Their names are Mary and Martha. And Jesus takes his time getting to Lazarus's side. And while he's taking his time, his friend Lazarus dies. So Jesus shows up on the scene. And Mary and Martha, these two sisters, look at him and they say, If you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. That's a pretty bold statement to the Son of God, don't you think? <laughs> If you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And and, and when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he makes that claim. What he will do right after is he will say to Lazarus, who's been in the tomb a couple of days now, and he's beginning to stink. The King James Version literally says, he stinketh. (laughs) I love that. Sorry, you don't. Um, And Jesus will say to Lazarus, come forth. And he comes out of the tomb with grave clothes still on. And they have to unbind him. But before he raises Lazarus from the dead, in order to prove that he is the resurrection and the life, Jesus wept. 
at the tomb of his friend. Side note, if you're looking for a second verse to memorize, this is also a great one because you're already done. One of the shortest verses in the Bible, people say it's the shortest, it's not, but one of. Jesus wept. Here's my question. He knows he's about to raise him from the dead, doesn't he? Why does he cry? You understand my question? Why does he cry? Here's the deal. Jesus is at his friend's grave, and he knows that death was not God's original design. He knows that he's experiencing consequences of sin. Not his own sin, but but global sin, universal sin, the brokenness of our world. God's original design was not death, it was life, but when we rebelled from him, what we earned for ourselves was death. That's why Romans says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. So Jesus is weeping here because of the consequences of sin in the world at the tomb of his friend. I love the emotion of Christ here. Chapter 12, Jesus is now having a a little visit with these two sisters, Mary, Martha, and newly raised Lazarus. I always wonder, like, what Lazarus' conversations with with his friends look like post raising from the dead. It's like, hey, dude, I heard you were dead. I was, you know? And he's having this moment with them just a few days before he will go to Jerusalem for the last time. And they know, these dear, dear friends of Jesus, they know something bad is coming. They can feel it. And so Mary, therefore, uh, got a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She pours out her worship on Jesus. Chapter 12 is about worship. Chapter 12 is about her extravagant, sacrificial, uninhibited worship of Jesus. And it's an example for us to follow as we worship him. And chapter 13 is just about washing. It's just about washing. Jesus is now in Jerusalem for the last time. He's celebrating Passover meal with his disciples. They're in an upper room together, and they're about to eat, and they know and realize that there's not a servant in the room that's going to wash their feet. It was a role reserved for the lowest of the low in that society because you'd be wiping sweat and dirt and animal feces off of people's feet because they walked around in sandals and even bare feet a lot. And so they start to kind of glance at each other awkwardly right like I'm sure that guys are thinking you know John like I'm the disciple whom Jesus loves I'm not washing anyone's feet you know maybe one of the lesser known Thaddeus they don't mention you a lot you should be washing people's feet and there's awkward glances at one another but Jesus, the Bible says, knowing that he had come from the Father and he was going back to the Father, knowing that all things were under his control, with that in mind, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garment, took, took a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He serves sacrificially. He puts aside his own rights and authority And becomes a humble servant to the disciples and to you and to me. 
And that brings us to where we are today. Jesus turns and looks at his disciples and he says, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He's saying, you're my messenger. You're the servant, not the master. You're not greater than me. So because I serve, you serve too. That's what he's saying to us. And then he makes this rather ominous statement. He says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may, say that word with me, believe, place your active trust in me that I am he. In other words, here's what Jesus does. He quotes Old Testament prophecy and he's saying, someone's going to betray me. Someone is going to lift his heel against me. And he says, I'm telling you this before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll know, oh, yeah, he told us about this. And it vindicates, proves Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Do you have anybody in your life that, like, that will tell you things? That they say, like, like before this happens, I'm going to tell you it happens in order to prove to you how smart I am. Like, the saints are going to win the Super Bowl this year. You just mark my words. That's not like an example. I'm just telling you. The Saints are going to win the Super Bowl this year. Okay? And, and when they do, you'll know that I'm a smart football guy. Right? Jesus is doing something similar here, but he's doing it on a much grander and larger scale. He's saying to them, I know someone's going to betray me. I know this is going to go sideways. I know this is going to hurt. I know it's coming. But when it happens, you'll know that I'm in control. Listen to how bad things are for Jesus. One of his closest friends is about to turn him over to the hands of the authorities in order to be crucified just a few days later. Here's what we know from this uh, instruction and this exhortation from the mouth of Christ to his disciples. No matter what, no matter what happens, God is in control. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how many times your friends betray you, no matter how many times life goes sideways, no matter how many times or how bad your finances, your job, your marriage, your emotional life, whatever it is, no matter what, it's not gotten as bad as it did for Jesus, first of all. And second, God is still on the throne. Jesus is saying, I know this is coming. And God is still in control. Listen to what the book of Acts says. It says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The cross was God's plan from the beginning. See, no matter what, God's still in control. No matter how bad you think it is, he's on the throne. I heard somebody say it this week that God never says, oops, my bad. <laughs> it never slips through the cracks with him. Even when Jesus' friend betrays him, no matter what, God is still in control. He knows it's coming. Then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. He's saying, I and the Father are one. If you receive God, you receive me. If you receive me, you receive the Father. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is no longer cryptic anymore, is it? This is no longer, okay, this Old Testament prophecy. And we're not sure what's going on here. He's like, look, one of you is going to betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. 
I mean, I wonder what they're thinking at this point. Uh, they may be thinking, is it you? Is it you? Is it you? I wonder if one of them or two of them or 12 of them are thinking, is it me? Is it me? And Peter makes this amazing, uh, amazing move here. I love what Peter does. Remember I said that John was younger when he started to follow Jesus? Peter was older. He was married. They, uh, actually, tell, the Bible tells us he has a mother-in-law. So Peter was an older guy. John was younger. And so it's, it's almost like Peter knows that he can get John to do what he wants to do, right? Peter can get John to ask Jesus a question that he doesn't actually want to ask Jesus. Peter's got a question. He wants to say something, but he knows it's probably inappropriate, right? It's probably not the right timing, so he kind of coaxes John into doing it. My older brother used to do this garbage with me all the time. He did. Like my dad, I remember one time my dad was talking in the car, and he was telling me something about soccer, I think, and like I played in a soccer game, and I needed to play better or something. Like I don't know what it was, right? And he literally says to me, Luke, are you listening to me? And my brother leans over and goes, say no. And I said, no, <laughs> just because I'm an idiot. And that did what my other brother told, older brother told me, right? You could not imagine how quickly my dad pulled that car over, right? Had a little talking to with me on the side of the road. So Peter does something similar here. Watch what Peter does. This is one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. This is John speaking of himself. Speaking of himself. He's reclining near to Jesus. And so Simon Peter motioned to him, ask Jesus whom he was speaking. You say it. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. He knows who it is. The son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, betray me, do quickly. The disciples are a little confused at this point. The Bible says that they don't really know what's going on. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, for the Passover, or, or that he should give something to the poor. But really what Jesus is saying, I know you're going to betray me, so let's just, just get on with it. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately, Judas, went out, and it was night, in more ways than one, by the way. When he had gone out, uh, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Jesus said glorify a lot just now. Here's just a really 21st century kind of definition of that term. Make famous. To, to be made famous. So Jesus is saying, look, the Son of Man, which is one of his favorite terms for himself, is going to be made famous, exalted, worshipped, lifted up. And as the Father does that, the Father will exalt himself as well. And as the Father makes the Son famous, so the Son makes the Father famous, so the Spirit makes the Son and the Father famous. So this triune God is working together to glorify within himself the triune God. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's like, look, I know I'm leaving, but you can't come with me, at least not yet. But before I depart, and I love this, and this is where we're going to wrap it up today. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you, come on now, love one another. I heard of a pastor one time, a guy that 
uh, was, you know, typically would preach for about an hour. I only preached for 40 minutes, so you're welcome, you know. Uh, so a guy that would preach for about an hour, uh, he got up and he delivered a sermon and, and he said, love one another. And then he sat down. People were confused. Got up and he said, no, seriously, love one another. And then he sat down. People still confused going, look, we got about 58 minutes left here. <laughs> and he got up one more time and he said, no, seriously, here's what Jesus is commanding. Turn Look at somebody in the eye. Get to know them. Ask them stuff. Find out the ways in which you can love them. And do it. You've got 56 minutes left. And so the congregation began to turn and ask one another questions and love one another. And it's not just loving one another. Watch what Jesus says. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. Remember the context here. Jesus has just put aside his rights as God and taken the role of the lowliest servant. Humbled himself. He said, you love each other like that. What is Jesus saying? He says, love someone else like Jesus loves you. And he's saying that to you today too. You love somebody else like Jesus loves you, unconditionally, sacrificially, putting your rights aside with humility. Love someone else like Jesus loves you. I don't care how old or young you are. I don't care what your vocation is. I don't care how much money you have or do not have. I don't care about your ethnicity. I don't care about anything. You can love somebody like Jesus loves you. You can follow him in that way. You can serve him in that way. And we just need to get over this kind of like, I'm important and I'm above this kind of thing. That's why Jesus said a servant is not above his master. We are to love one another as Jesus loves us. Now, on December 23rd, Sunday here, just last week, uh, a friend of mine gave me a gift. She's in her 80s. Uh, she doesn't necessarily have a ton of money, but she gave me a little poinsettia for my daughter, four-year-old. She brought it to me. She said, make sure she waters it, right? And she's trying to instruct Kaya as Kaya, like, runs off, right? And look, it wasn't much. It wasn't necessarily an extravagant gift, but it was so incredibly thoughtful. She loved me that day the way that Jesus loves her. See, it doesn't take much, friends. I mean, lots of us are kind of looking for what's God's will for my life. I want to do big things for God. And God just comes along and goes, maybe something small could change somebody's December. That gift did. And then I had a bunch of stuff in my hands that day. Other people, you know, gave me stuff, handed me stuff, whatever it is. It's typical for a Sunday for me. And I'm trying to watch um, my four-year-old who is just crazy. And, and we, we walked out this door right here uh, onto the steps, and I tripped on the steps. And the dirt from my poinsettia went everywhere, all over the ground. And as I'm trying to figure out Kaya, and as I'm trying to, you know, I got to clean this up, and I got stuff all in my hands and whatever, I turn around, and there's another woman that goes here. She's also in her 80s, and she's bent down, and it's taken her about this long. <laughs> And she just begins to sweep up this dirt. 
See, he, he took off his outer garment. And he wrapped a towel around his waist. And he bent down and he just started to wash people's feet. It doesn't take much to love someone like Jesus loves you. To humble yourself and care for somebody else. And Jesus, watch this. Watch what he says. He says, and if you do that, all people will know you're my disciples. Everybody will know that you're my follower when you love people in that extraordinary, extravagant, sacrificial kind of way, even in the smallest things. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is love is the best apologetic. Apologetics, if you don't know what that is, it's a field that w- where, where people defend the faith. They reason Christianity. They say, look, our faith is a thought through faith. It's a logical faith. It's a faith that's got evidence to go along with it. People like Ravi Zacharias, and I love that. That's the field of apologetics. But Jesus is saying, love is the best one. When you love one another in that way, people will look and go, well, then Christianity makes sense. Jesus makes sense. Following him makes sense because of the way you love one another. Friends, what if that was our uh, New Year's resolution for 2019? Just to love one another like Jesus loves us. To put our differences aside, to put our preferences aside, to put even our rights aside. To be humble, sacrificial Lovers of one another. It would change our church. It would change our city. It would change the world. And the great news is you have the rest of the day and all day tomorrow to be super selfish. And then start January 1. It'd be different, friends. It'd be different, beloved, as the disciples would call the churches. If we loved one another in the way that Jesus loves us, and that's his commandment, so that all people will know that you're my disciples. And that's chapter 13. 13 W's to get us up to speed. And the end of chapter 13, we'll get into 14 next week. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your grace to us and your goodness. Thank you that you lead by example. God, thank you that you're not a do as I say, not as I do kind of God. But you're a do as I do, kind of God. That you've given us an example that we should love one another by serving one another. God, would you remind us of all, um, Spirit of God, just as you promised, remind us of what you taught Jesus and how you lived. Continue to shape us and mold us into um, the people and the followers and the disciples that you want us to be. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said.